Hey everyone, want to get better at public speaking? No? Then shut up. Today's book is Do You Talk Funny by David Nihill. <laughs> I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I've known Dave Nihill for years, and I've always been jealous of his Irish voice, which in America after shows, people will ask him if his accent is real, and I don't blame them. And I'm David Vance. I grew up with the sexy metropolitan Southeast Idaho accent. In Do You Talk Funny, David Nihill goes undercover pretending to be a stand-up comic so he can get better at public speaking. Kind of how Kellen pretends he's been on Conan so he can get better at having fans. That was real. I love the commitment to the bit. And this is The Book Pile. And this is The Book Pile. It's <laughs> my Irish take. I think it's Scottish. I have no idea. This re- review is from Well Pleased. I had a pile of laundry, and I was listening to this podcast. I folded the entire load, and there was even a moment where I was disappointed I had no more laundry to fold because I wanted to finish the episode. So if you have a pile of something you want to get done, turn on the book pile. (laughs) I think that review was written by Marie Kondo, and she was disappointed because (laughs) laundry is her friends. (laughs) If you'd like to join our email list and or recommend a book, just email us at thebookpilepodcast at gmail.com. Also, this episode, we're introducing a new feature called Retractions in One Breath. It goes like this. O-type blood is not the universal donor. That's O-negative. The Hamilton door squeak didn't inspire the dun da 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 inspired da 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 And Microsoft is actually doing very well worth $1.7 trillion. We were only making fun of their products. Okay. <laughs> Also, every one of those was pointed out to me by my family, my dad and my sisters, in case you're wondering how exhausting a family of me is. So before we introduce our guest today, the author of Do You Talk Funny, we just want to let you know that he's a world traveler. He's been to over 70 countries. He's currently living in the Canary Islands where we connected with him for this long distance interview. So the quality of his audio is just slightly subpar, but he's a comedian with great public speaking wisdom to share, and he's also a fantastic storyteller. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Our next guest is a best-selling writer whose book has been listed as the number one in the world on public speaking and storytelling by Book Authority. He's taught at Oxford and Stanford universities. He's a former winner and host of the Moth Storytelling Series and the winner of the 2018 San Francisco International Comedy Competition, a competition that I took fifth in uh, (laughs) 10 years earlier. Forbes.com has called him one of the best speaking coaches out there, which is pretty ironic seeing as he's always been afraid of public speaking. Here to explain all that, all the way from exotic Ireland, it's Dave Nihill. Hello there. Hey, Dave. Hi, Dave. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Dave, which sounds, I I feel like I'm back in school now because in Ireland, we went through a phase when I was growing up where we became conscious about calling everybody Paddy or Patrick, swapped it for Dave or David. And there was seven Davids (laughs) in my class of 30 when I was a kid growing up. And now it's like Kellen and David and David. I'm like, oh, I'm back in that weird scenario again. I once read a book that talked about the trends of naming in different populations and how you'll see names come into 
fashion with uh, people who are wealthier, and then they travel down to middle class and then working class over time. Yeah, I do remember that. You'll probably never encounter anything like Ireland, though, where we have our most popular name is also our most popular racial slur. So, like, if you really want to offend an Irish person, call them a paddy, and then we're like, let's just call everyone paddy. And someone calls me a paddy, I'm like, no, that's actually my middle name and my dad's name and my best friend's (laughs) name. So it's very hard to be offended. To make this come full circle, my middle name is David. Oh, I'm out of here. (laughs) It was because my my, uh, grandfather was a drunk. Uh, (laughs) Don't be linking that to my country. Yeah, we are not drunks. We are connoisseurs of alcohol. Your country, the tree top-selling beers are Budweiser, Bud Light, and Coors Light. That's a credit score <laughs> issue right there. I, lo- I love when Americans blame that on Irish people. Like, it's, I think it's an Irish genes issue. I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure it's economic factors. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So during this uh, episode, when I say, uh, since you guys are both Dave, when, when you guys hear me say the word Dave with a tone of respect, that's when I'm talking about uh, our guest. So Dave, uh, Dave. Um, You wrote this book about public speaking and bringing humor into public speaking. Uh, And early on in the book, you mentioned how stand-up comics, because we spend uh, the most amount of time in public, that we are essentially the the world's experts on public speaking. So when I read that, I knew that the rest of your book was uh, that I would agree with everything in it. (laughs) It's an accurate one. And it's just one that the drum isn't beaten enough of out there in the world where people are like, oh, I need help with this different topic of public speaking who does this in the most difficult circumstances imaginable mm. night after night with angry depressed people coming in drinking alcohol folding their arms and going entertain me now and like nobody else has that so like you have all these public speaking groups like toastmasters and stuff that people are part of that are extremely supportive but what happens when your audience isn't supportive like it, it becomes a whole different dynamic so i just i always thought it was funny i look at this whole industry i'm like the people teaching it in this industry have not been on stage very often why and they're most even the experts on public speaking are scared of even the idea of doing stand-up comedy and and so they should be but like should you really be able to teach every aspect of public speaking if you can't teach one of the most powerful parts of public speaking which is humor it's kind of like somebody entering a decathlon and not being able to jump the hurdles and they're like yeah but i can do the rest (laughs) (laughs) it's so true i've brought up how stand-up comedy the only way to learn how to do it, it's you learn on the job and you start in the worst possible conditions. It's sort of backward, but it, you're motivated to learn the skills much quicker than you would be surrounded by a supportive group. Yeah, and you're introduced to failure much faster. They're like, we hate you. And you're like, well, this is not a fun scenario. How do I change and avoid this from now on? I wonder if we should teach kids math that way. You put them <laughs> under a spotlight, you heckle them when they get it wrong, you make them feel intense shame when they fail. I mean, I was homeschooled, so it was a lot like that. <laughs> but stand-up comedy, is a, it's a funny one, though, because there's so much darkness in it sometimes as well. Like, to the end, I, I found myself doing shows a lot. I nearly felt guilty in the States, because in Ireland, I just grew up where you wouldn't talk about that. They're like, you have issues, you keep them in yourself, son. <laughs> so in Ireland, uh, the stand-up comedy, its you're saying it's not as autobiographical as it is in the States because of that? It doesn't go as deep. It's starting to because oh, a, as a culture, we've started to change it now. So like, you know, when I go home now, there's ads on the radio and they're like, feeling depressed, call this number. Whereas I was a kid, it was like, feeling depressed, well, keep it to yourself and get out of here. <laughs> 
<laughs> is that a sign on like a, a bus bench? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Keep it to yourself. Hold it in. Because we just that isn't a part of comedy. Comedy was just storytelling of just bonkers things to happen to people on a daily oh, basis okay. in directions without getting into the emotions of of the family unit too much for the fear of bringing shame on the family, which in Ireland mm. is is a huge thing. You know, in the news they'll read out your name and your address just in case somebody wants to turn up and throw a brick through the window. Yeah, wow. it's, it, it's very weird. Like when you're convicted of something. They openly list the person's address on the news when they're reporting on the incident. Oh my gosh. I think in the world of stand up comedy, the failure aspects, the deep emotional side, the dark aspects of comedy weren't being talked about that much, whereas the more rosier storytelling, crazier stuff was. Yeah, so it was was different to get used to to arrive in the States all of a sudden and be like, well, this is different. These people are being very like deep. There's a lot of, I wouldn't say oversharing, but I'd be like, my God, I learned everything I need to know about that person in five minutes. (laughs) Yes. Sometimes, sometimes uh, like bombing, bombing with deeply emotional autobiographical material is sort of like being at a poetry slam where nothing rhymes. (laughs) (laughs) In the back of my mind, I just wanted to publicize that a bit. I'm like, when people need help with public speaking, go to comedians first and then find some guy with Roger who will coach you in conflict resolution, public speaking, storytelling, hopscotch, throwing frisbees, whatever you'll pay him to teach you, they will do it because that's how they survive as a business, not because they have a deep expertise in public speaking. So it just annoyed me a bit. There was all these people armed to the teeth with great experience out there that were being overlooked as a, as a medium to share it sometimes. Going along with, with one of the skills of public speaking, something that I love that you uh, brought up in the book, it brings us to our, our first point from your book. You said, uh, make sure there isn't a page between you and the audience. I want to get your thoughts on that and why that's valuable. I found that for myself, I used to write out verbatim my jokes in the beginning, but then I found out that like even when you've memorized something that has been written down, people can tell. It's almost like you're reading to them if you're just reciting what you're saying rather than saying what you're saying i think they pick up on it they pick up on your lack of excitement as well in saying and you're saying because like saying something that's raw popped into your head that you can visualize and you have some emotional attached to is very different i remember a comedian in san francisco going on before me one night and he, he had a lot more experience than i did a lot more talented i remember him going like oh if you want to see more of me follow me on my on my youtube channel i have over 20 million views and i just remember walking up and i was like ladies and gentlemen i need some support here because i had a very tough day i spent it watching that guy YouTube channel 20 million times <laughs> the place just explodes now he looks at me like he wants to shoot me but it's just it's just taking a chance with something like that with the audience where they know he can't have wrote that like he didn't practice that and that was out on a limb and then they just assume that it's you connecting with them did that guy get so upset at you that he put your address on the news so people could throw rocks <laughs> at your house yeah in Ireland there's a reason I'm not in Ireland now I can't go home another thing I want to add to this is that I had a comic early on tell me that I shouldn't say the words like when it comes to um, you're going to be ruined in American culture. You get you guys get oh. a whole sentence out of that. So I agree in the middle of sentences, but I'm just saying when you are reciting a story, I hear someone like Chad Daniels. He just tells stories like that in that sense. Like I said, he doesn't throw like just in the middle of sentences, but he tells stories on stage. He's still efficient about it, but he's still. It's like he's just talking to a friend. Yeah, it's, it sounds real. 
doesn't it? And I, I think mm-hmm. there, when you get into the real master storytellers, I love, I've done a lot of shows with a guy called Don Reed, who is my favorite storyteller ever. He's absolutely spectacular. And he's been on everything from the Cosby show back in the days to, I think he opened oh. for Jay Leno for a thousand shows in a row. He's unbelievably good, but he does, I think, what something like all people do that are masterful storytellers. They bring the story into the present tense. And that allows you to get the word economy. Huh. So it's never I was walking. It, it's never I was walking. It's I'm walking. I'm walking right in front of me. And then all of a sudden, you're just eliminating all these words. There's no he said, she said. You just take on a character's voice. And you don't even have to be good at the character's voice. You just have to differentiate it. So if it's your mother, they don't know what your mother sounds like. You just change your voice ever so slightly. Like, you don't want to be getting in trouble. Like, you know, dodgy accent impressions are not so popular, as you've heard from my American one already today. But the amount of pirate... <laughs> The amount of people in America are like, oh, my God, you're Irish. Top of the morning to you. Walk the plank. Yar. Oh, no. (laughs) Do they think the Irish are pirates? Leprechaun (laughs) pirates, apparently. Uh. (laughs) So, good, Dave. I want to jump on that point. You just hit of economy (laughs) to bring us to our second lesson of the day. One thing I really liked from the book is be economical. So you mentioned in the book some studies on attention span by Wilbert McKeechee, where he found that in a typical lecture, people's attention increases till about the 10-minute mark, and then after that, it decreases. And so increasingly, you'll see a lot of TED Talks try to be shorter than that 10 minutes. And I just love that focus on brevity in the book. You know, you mentioned the Gettysburg Address was less than three minutes. Uh, Churchill's blood toil, tears and sweat speech was less than five minutes. The takeaway for me is just this notion of, you know, be economical, try to get rid of everything that doesn't help your message. Um, There's that Voltaire quote that I love where he says, the secret of being a bore is to tell everything. I definitely agree with that. And that brevity is levity that that Shakespeare was so famous for saying, I don't want to be getting into quoting British people, but he's a pretty solid one when it comes to writing (laughs) techniques. I'd rather it was James Joyce or Oscar Wilde I was quoting, but it's, it's just great advice. Brevity is levity. So it's like edit it like you have to pay for every single word that you use. And I just think over time you think uh, about like I have to pay a dollar for every word that's in here. So what can I get rid of? And you nearly always make it better. There's always elements of a story that you put in and you're like, why did I even mention that person? Because they don't need to be there for the audience. I think I love him. Ken Robinson has a talk that is the most viewed TED talk of all time. And then he makes people laugh about three times per minute, which is a number Irish people can't pronounce, but also a pretty good metric to go by. <laughs> See that this guy's pretty entertaining talking about schools killing creativity. But if you analyze it, he's telling stories, one, that have nothing to do with his topic whatsoever. He just likes telling them, which is a great way to relate to your audience and is very much what a stand-up comedian would do. Um, and two, he's, he's any details that are not necessarily are gone he'll be like oh me and the wife we were moving from stratford upon avon in england to la does he tell you why no it's left to assume how long are they married what's her name doesn't say any of it the story is about the kids it's about a certain thing with the kids and that's the only thing he's setting up so i think the great storytellers and the people that write with brevity and levity in his mind is already know the end of the journey they start with that and work backwards and really edit out every word like they're paying a dollar for it and every detail where they're saving time I think I was chatting to Kellen about this before because I had a story I told in like 20-something minutes. And I thought that's how much time it needed for all the tangents. But I put it out as a one-minute video on TikTok and it was like 2 million views. So something I thought was not possible to do in a brief format because it was such a a complex story involving a bit of emotion and loads of stuff. It turns out people are like, yeah, all that other stuff was nice, but we don't care. The one-minute version is perfectly. We've gotten some requests from viewers to make our podcast one minute. (laughs) You'll be getting a few more after 
this episode and for some kind of subtitles. <laughs> I do want to hit on that idea of trimming down to the very essence of the story. I, I think I read this from Robert McKee in his book Story, where he talked about how once you have your first draft and once you know what the story is about, you go back and you cut out everything that the story is not about. So once you know what that heart is, you go back and just as much as possible cut the fat. So you just get down to the kind of the very bare bones of the essence of your story. There was another thing in the book that I think we were chatting about at some stage, which is kind of concepts of rehearsed spontaneity. Just like that callback from comedy as a reference to something that was already said or happened. So like when I mentioned that guy's YouTube. So the, the same one when I did in the UK in Manchester, I was the third speaker. And the first speaker, when she went out, she was a human cyborg. So she'd actually had sensors implanted in her feet so she could feel earthquakes any moment anywhere in the world. Whenever there's an earthquake, what? this lady can feel it and tell Whoa. you about it. But the host, didn't, the host didn't really say that when he introduced her. So she walked out on stage and it just so happened the smoke machine was broken. So it was all a little bit getting eerie and there was more smoke than usual going on. It's super quiet <laughs> first thing in the morning. And she just walks out and she's like, I'm going to start this talk when I feel an earthquake. And then, Oh, my gosh. That's just remained silent. And everyone's like, what's going on here now? This is a bit weird. And 30 seconds in, she still hasn't said anything. And the tension's just grown and grown. And someone's actually shouting earthquake in the crowd just to get this TED Talk started. And then she actually goes, okay, there it is. I felt it. And now she gets to explain the cool aspect that everyone else didn't really know because they were too sleepy to get it in the intro or it just wasn't said. Sure. But it was the most memorable thing ever. So I'm, you know, TED Talk's pretty wow. serious stuff. You're on the clock. You're not meant to stray. But I like just goofing around with the audience. This is 2,400 people. Nobody usually lets me loose on 2,400 people just to goof around. Nobody goofs around with a TED Talk, right? Like you, you have the mm -hmm. chance of ending up on TED.com. So you don't goof around, but I don't know. I just, I just thought that's a, such a moment. I have to play with it. Like it was so weird. So when I went out, I stood on stage and I was like, well, I, I don't know what to do now. I was just going to stand here until I felt an earthquake, but that's been done. Uh, <laughs> and you guys are obviously a great crowd because when she said there's an earthquake, I, I left the building. In California, people think that we have earthquakes all the time. Like people are scared to live here. I, uh, but you know, we feel like about one a year. And I, did, I slept through all of them, but I blamed the discovery of medical cannabis, which I didn't know was a thing. And I was like, wow, really? I can just buy, eat and consume this for some kind of medical improvement. And I didn't feel a single earthquake the whole 14, 15 years I lived on and off in California. No. <laughs> You're saying if you were hanging out with this lady and she said she felt an earthquake, you'd be like, oh, here, try this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dave, segueing from that personal story, I want to hit on a third lesson that we really enjoyed from your book, which was collect interesting stories. So in the book, you literally recommend keeping a list of interesting things that happen to you. And personally, I love that idea because I don't realize how many of my best stories I forget till I go back and I read old journals and just totally forget the number of things that I've, I've spaced on. Uh, there's that old proverb that says, the faintest ink is better than the strongest memory. Or I think that's what it was. I didn't write it down. And I, I love that. <laughs> I love, uh, I'd love just that practice. So I'd love to hear when you, when and how you started keeping that list. Yeah, I think it was a podcast I listened to and it was a guy describing with his kid that his kid always wanted to go camping until they actually went camping. He realized he didn't like camping, but he kept forgetting he didn't like camping. So he kept asking the dad to go camping again repeatedly. So the dad started keeping a journal and a file describing all the events. And every time his kid said, I want to go camping, his dad well pulled out, well, do you remember the last time? And the kid said, no. And he said, well, I do. 
<laughs> no, he he had the the flip side of that as well, also on the positive things, where he knew the little nuanced details of all these big moments in life that otherwise he would have forgotten. And I'm always the same. I was saying it to Kellen before that he had a joke about putting a D lock on Baskin Robbins like a bicycle lock, and I didn't remember in my own life that as a kid growing up I did that. I went and stuck it on my <laughs> school, a stolen bicycle lock, and we locked it. And I watched the caretaker the next morning try and weld it off or solder it off for hours. And I totally <laughs> forgot that little bit of mischievousness because I didn't write it down. Like I had a friend of mine, I used to live in Colombia, and one day we went on a hike and we were in a field and we came across FARC, like a rebel group, and they started chasing us. And I was wearing a red T-shirt. Yeah. And the only way to run out of there was through this river and up and across a field. And when we ran across the field, it was full of bulls, not just regular bulls. It was actually <laughs> the fields where they keep the bulls for the bullfighting. No. So I'm no. running through a bullfighting field in a red T-shirt <laughs> with armed gorillas chasing after us. I'm like, at this couldn't be any more insane and the, the more the only thing that's more insane than that story is i forgot that story no i totally forgot the cannabis yeah exactly and the earthquakes <laughs> and the lack of earthquakes in my life i i totally forgot that story and so it's like i started writing down all the mad things and you just forget all those things if you don't write them down you don't have to write them down in full form but doesn't make a note of the thought you had that made you smile or laugh or struck you as strange at any moment in time and repeat it. If you don't track those things, you do totally forget them. So it's just a good exercise to open up whatever smartphone you have. Don't do it in a diary or journal. You need something that's on you at all times. So you just instantly yeah. get into the habit of writing it down or it's gone forever. I think that pe people have more stories than they, than they think they do because I I started doing this three or four years ago, just collecting these. Like I said, I don't tell a lot of stories on stage, but sometimes I, I'll do I'll be on a podcast or have a radio interview, or if you're just at a get together, a party, and and they're going around saying like, "What's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you?" I can never remember in the moment, but I will remember driving home that night. That's why it's useful to have these things because if you are asked to give a talk or a speech or something, it's it's likely not going to be in the preparation, like the, you're racking your brains trying to remember. It's it's in these in-between moments when you're falling asleep at night, you know, something will come to you and it is so important to write it down. Or li and just listening to other people's stories, like listening to comedians, listen to a podcast, oh, sure. snap judgment, and you're like, ah, something like that happened to me. And it might not be running through a field, like getting chased by bulls and far gravels in Columbia, but you're going to have... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to use that one verbatim now. <laughs> Yeah, you could. They were like, fill in the details. You're like, I can't. I was tortured. Like, how do you forget that stuff? It's madness. But when I was in, um, when I was in Colombia, I met this girl and they hired me to be her English teacher. Um, and she was on the set of a movie. They were adapting Love in the Time of Cholera, the movie in Cartagena. They told the whole city, they turned the whole city into a big movie set. And Javier Bardem was the star of this movie. It was a big deal. Yeah. And this girl, they'd given her a role and her English wasn't great. So this production company did not know that Irish people are not exactly famous for speaking good English. So I was their idea of a high quality native English speaker to help this girl. And sure enough, we were dating within a couple of lessons. But anyway, long story short, I ended up living with this girl and she was just an amazing dancer. And it was intimidating. In salsa, you're the man you're meant to lead. Uh, I haven't a clue. I've like, when I dance, it's like I have a cat on one leg and a dog on the other, and they're just trying to get away from each other and eat each other all at the same time. <laughs> it's a horrendous thing that nobody should ever witness. 
So I'd never dance with this girl. It's like, cause the whole room, it would draw attention to me as the foreigner with this girl. They're like, Oh, what are you doing here? And it just, it always felt awkward. So I went away for the weekend. I got pretty drunk in this club. She wasn't there. And I danced with anyone that would dance with me at this place. And I didn't think much more about it. I had a great night. And I was sitting there with the girl I was dating months later watching television. And this TV commercial comes on for a nightclub in Medellin in Colombia. And it's a very clearly a gringo dancing with a, Colombian girl and she points at the screen she's like see there's a gringo dance with his Colombian girl why can't you be more like that and then she points it again she's like that is you and I have no memory but I made a tv commercial that night when I was drunk in a club in Colombia for X like links to deodorant spray and it was a gringo dance with a Colombian girl and it was aired on television I somehow consented to this while intoxicated and I remember none of this someone had to tell me about it months later I'd actually forgotten that story how could you forget that story you will and then you do really just got to jot them down what i love about that practice of keeping a list of your stories is that i do feel like it ends up being kind of a force multiplier so kind of in the same way that gratitude takes the good things you already have and it, it gets more happiness out of them i feel like that list takes the life you already have and it just gets more interest out of it I do think also that so much of good storytelling is just remembering and paying attention. So Dave, you and I talked about how Amos Tversky once said, interesting things happen to people who can weave them into interesting stories. So I do think there is an alchemy in just that paying attention. I love mixing that alchemy and just paying attention and keeping a list of it. And that list, it's like the world's happiest journal. Like, it's not like that thing that tracked your emotional state of mind when you were a bit down, your friends didn't call you, you ate a cake and put on some weight for one day only. (laughs) Nobody cares about that. Not even you. It's horrible to read back. But this is a list of just little moments that come together to make up your life and that everybody else tends to find relatable. It just helps them be top of mind. So when that moment comes when someone's like, hey, share something, you're like, actually, yes. It's a bit more top of mind. And worst case scenario, if it's not, you have a list to go back to, whether if you're writing a book or a blog post, you're just going to find little magic moments that you didn't think existed. Just little things in their simplicity that you're like, ah, I love that. You're talking about the uh, the dad who's like, oh, you want to go camping? Here's proof to how oh, you know last time sucked. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that the next time that my uh, that my nine year old asks if we can go to Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> I just gonna be like, we went, we went last week. You don't remember, like you. Well, thank you so much, Dave. This thank has been you so uh, much, so Dave. much fun. Yeah, I'm gonna take the recording of Kellen saying thank you so much, Dave. This has been so much fun, and just listen to it on repeat. <laughs> yeah, you should emotional support. <laughs> All right, our random fact round. And by the way, so Dave Nihill wasn't able to join us for this part of the random facts round. So we're going to do all of these behind his back. (laughs) All right, random facts. So I loved this idea. He talks about how the beginning of a stand-up set is so judgmental, meaning the audience is judging you so hard. That one trick is before your set, try to make friends with as many people in the audience as possible so that when you start you know, you kind of have the room already on your side, which I think that would also work in a murder trial. But I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> Kellen, if, if you've ever tried that before a stand-up set or before any kind of like public speaking engagement. It, I mean, it seems like kind of a, a desperate move, but I see its merits. I, I did it. I've done it once in 15 years of comedy, and it actually was during the San Francisco International Comedy Competition. It's a competition that takes place. It's like 15 different shows that are spread out over three weeks. And the Sonoma State University show was 
was the second night of the whole run. I couldn't find the back entrance to get into the theater. Um, and there was a line of like, you know, 300 students to get into the show. And I was like an hour and a half early. So I just sort of made my way through the line. And I was like, hey, sorry, I have to skip in front of you. I'm Kellen kind of one of the comics tonight. And I just sort of used that like a couple dozen different times as I was walking through. And I, I had little <laughs> conversations with the people who were interested or had more questions. So I, I met a ton of people along the way. And when I got on stage that night, there was definitely like more energy in my greeting than any of the other nine comics who were on the show that night. Interesting. <laughs> so it was, I felt like cheating a little bit, but I got first place that, that night. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now I do want to see someone do literally verbatim that in a murder trial. We're like, oh, sorry, I got to get past you. I'm the accused. <laughs> Yeah. That's the guy. That's what they're saying. That's later. him. <laughs> Another one, Dave pulls this great quote from Charlie Chaplin, where he said, to truly laugh, you must be able to take your pain and play with it. Which on this podcast, we like doing that with someone else's pain. We talked in Bossy Pants about this idea of taking your mistakes and alchemizing them into something great. So I love that you can also alchemize your pain into something great. So this random fact is a little bit of continuation of what we said earlier when we were talking about be economical. But there's this quote from Thomas Jefferson where he says, the most valuable of all talents is that of never using two words when one will do. Which is a very long sentence because even in grammar, Jefferson was a hypocrite. But I love that premise of everything is about, you know, like whittling down to have the greatest concision possible in your your messages. Yes. <laughs> Another quote I love, and I, I can't find the source of this quote, but I once heard someone say, a joke is the shortest number of words to get to a punchline. Mm. Every word should be serving some crucial role to what you're saying. Important. <laughs> that was a 30-word sentence that I made into one as a response. <laughs> well done. I would love if you start treating conciseness the way people treat carbon credits, where they were like, oh yeah, this person was going to emit a million tons of carbon, and then they emitted zero. So it balances out. Uh, I'm, I'm not explaining this well. <laughs> I realized about two-thirds of the way through how complicated this joke idea is. <laughs> just going to bail on it. <laughs> that's, a, that's the other way to be concise, is to just give up halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my dad was a concise parent. <laughs> just kidding. I have a very loving and supportive dad. <laughs> Who corrected you on all of your podcast mistakes? <laughs> he just corrected me on the Microsoft one. The other ones were my sisters. <laughs> the Microsoft one was funny because we uh, we weren't saying that they were an unsuccessful company. We were just saying that towards the end, people just haven't cared for what they... Like, I yeah. make fun of people who have a Hotmail account, you know? we Yeah, we weren't calling them poor. We were calling them lame. <laughs> <laughs> all right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Do You Talk Funny? One... Make sure there isn't a page between you and the audience. Two, collect interesting stories. Three, be economical. And four, be Irish. I was like, and she was like, and we were like, and it was like a really emotional time where we you're all just like, really like, and you're like, wait a minute, that was just a <laughs> stream your, of likes. Is that your American impression? <laughs> no. No.